0: Grace and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God the Father and through Jesus Christ his Son. My dear friends in Christ, we've been saying this now for a number of weeks. I'm going to say it one more time and probably again next week, but I just want to make sure that we all get it. The word Advent is a word that means coming near or arrival. And it is now this season of Advent where we prepare for the Lord to do just that. And one of the ways that you prepare for the Lord to come near you is to ask yourself the question of whether or not that is actually a good thing. Is it good? Picturing, knowing that the Lord is going to come near you. Let me put it this way. Let's say you were walking out of church this morning and I got some inside information and I said to you, hey, just to give you a little heads up, the Lord told me that he is going to stop by for a visit at your house tomorrow. The Lord Almighty God, who knows and sees all things right down into your thoughts and your heart. Thoughts on that? Excited? Maybe a little uneasy? Maybe downright terrified? Which is the correct answer? Well, the correct answer is, of course, it depends. It's sort of like asking, are you happy when the police show up? Well, that entirely depends. Are you the victim who is in need of help? Or are you the criminal who is in need of being arrested? Or is it a good thing when your boss comes up to you and says, hey, I want you to stop by my office on Friday at the end of the day. i got something I need to talk with you about. Well, that depends. Are you up for a raise, or is your company in the midst of some pretty tight budget crunches and your job might just be on the chopping block? Or think about how different these two phrases are. So similar, but so different. Daddy's home compared to just wait until your father gets home. You see, is it a good thing or a bad thing? It entirely depends. The day of the Lord is near. Is that a good thing or a terrifying thing? Well, good or bad, that phrase right there was the prophet Zephaniah's message to the people living in and around Jerusalem in the middle 600s B.C. We heard a portion of that message from Zephaniah in our first scripture reading. The day of the Lord is near. He wasn't the first prophet to preach that message. In fact, it was one of the more common messages that the Lord called his prophets to preach. But the day of the Lord is a phrase that could take on a couple different meanings. One of the meanings was that it always pointed ahead into the distant future as a reference to Judgment Day. The day, the last day, the great and final day when the Lord will come. The day of the Lord is near. The day when the Lord will come to raise and judge the living and the dead, as we just confessed in the creed. But God's prophets also spoke about another day of the Lord. And unlike Judgment Day, there were lots of these other days of the Lord. The day of the Lord became a way to describe God's immediate judgment either on an individual or on an entire nation, where he would carry out destruction. So, for example, the day of the Lord came for the northern tribes of Israel in 722 B.C., when the Lord sent in the Assyrian army who totally destroyed the northern ten tribes and carried them off into exile, never to be heard from again. The day of the Lord then came for those very same Assyrians in 612 BC at the hands of a different nation and a different army called the Medes and the Persians. The day of the Lord is near. That was now Zephaniah's prophecy to the people, as I said, who were living in and around Jerusalem. And if they were paying attention, to what that phrase meant for the other nations recently, then to answer the question, no, this is not a good thing. We don't want the day of the Lord to come because we know it means judgment and destruction and slavery and death. But how did God's people get here? How did the specifically chosen people of God, how did they go from being that to receiving this special promise of judgment? Well, if you recall, God had given the people of Israel the promised land, and when he did, he warned them repeatedly That if they turned away from the Lord to worship other gods, that He would uproot them and turn them into the laughing stock of the entire known world. You remember that intense scene in Joshua chapter 24? The people of Israel are right there in the midst, getting ready to embark on the, the, the future having just entered into the promised land, and Joshua, who was Moses' replacement, looks out at all of the people and he says, so what do you want to do? Do you want to serve the God who just brought you out of slavery and led you through the wilderness and handed nation after nation over to you? Or do you want to go and serve something else? And Joshua gives us this very powerful passage. Whatever you decide to do, for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And everyone else in Israel said, yes, we agree, we'll do the same, we love the Lord, we'll serve him forever. And some of them did for a while. But eventually, the success of living in the promised land consumed them. They gave in to the lure of what the world, uh, what the world around them was, and, and they wanted more than anything to just fit in and be like the other godless nations around them. Well, I say godless, but none of them were actually godless. They had plenty of false gods. Idols like Baal and Molech whose worship practices included things like religious prostitution and child sacrifice. They repeatedly rejected God's prophets when He sent them to call His people to repent, to change from their wicked ways. They stoned the prophets that they could kind of you know, stand. Hoping that it would teach them a lesson. But the prophets they really didn't like, well, they just killed them. Not only that, but they did all of this with an extreme amount of confidence that the Lord wasn't going to do anything to them, neither good nor bad. He wasn't going to punish them for rejecting God, nor would he reward them if they faithfully loved and served the Lord. It was almost as if the Lord just didn't exist to them anymore. Sort of like a modern day atheist. And so all they had left was to turn their own success, their wealth and their real estate and their family and their business dealings into their God's. You know, none of this happened overnight. Neither the rejecting of God by Israel, nor God finally promising a day of their judgment. By the time Zephaniah comes on the scene, God's people had been living in the promised land, and for almost a thousand years, the vast majority of which were years spent away from God. No, it didn't happen overnight. It happened the way that unbelief always happens. Little by little, inch by inch, each generation just moving a little further away from God until he is completely out of sight and out of mind and out of heart and out of mouth. And 2,500 years later, not much has changed with the people of God, has it? No, we don't toss our children up on a literal altar and strike the match. But there are plenty of altars that we willingly sacrifice our children on, are there not? The altar of whatever we fashion in their lives to be more important to them than God. comes in a lot of different shapes and forms these days. One of them nowadays seems to be sports. That this is the key to your children's future. And if you don't pour your life and your heart and your soul into this, well, then you won't get into a good college and you probably won't amount to anything. So at the age of four, we got to make sure that your seven day a week job is athletics. Or maybe it's friendships. You know, because that's the only way that kids are truly going to know that they're loved. And so you rearrange your whole life to make sure that they are at everything, that they never miss a play date, that they never miss an opportunity to hang out with their friends and build these relationships because without that, well, they're going to go through life and think that everyone hates them. Or maybe it's helping them fit in with the world rather than molding them to stick out in the world like salt and light in a dark and decaying world. All in the hopes that if they blend in with the world, their lives will be easier. And you know what? So will yours. Because you're not going to have to have any of those hard conversations or get into any arguments over God and His Word because that will just upset them. And you do not want to lose your kids. Certainly not at the expense of God. Or what was another religious practice back in Zephaniah's day? Oh, oh yeah, I've never heard someone suggest that we should follow in Judah's footsteps to give religious prostitution a try. But it's not really as extreme as it sounds. You see, all it was is the people of Judah simply thought that if they brought their promiscuous and perverted sexual practices actually into the temple, then that would sanctify them. And it would make them more acceptable to God, even if that God wasn't the God anymore. A new outreach strategy, perhaps. No, we're much more sly about it when we do it. And we actually prefer to do it in reverse. Instead of bringing promiscuity into the temple, we assume that we can just take God out of it and marry Him to our, really it's the world's, view on human sexuality. That we still love God, we just really, really, really love this other person more. And, you know, if God could just see how happy they make you or how happy they are doing what they're doing, you know what? Then you are convinced that God would change his mind on things like sex and marriage and divorce and, well, and pretty much anything else. Little by little, inch by inch, generation by generation. Maybe you're not at the point yet this morning that you want to stone me. But will your kids? Will your great-grandkids? How long before God is out of sight, out of mind, out of heart, and out of mouth for your family? Because the day of the Lord is near. So what should we expect? Well, if we're paying attention, nothing good, but only wrath and punishment. 722 was the day of judgment for Israel. 612 was Assyria's, and in 586 BC, the day of the Lord came for Judah as the Babylonian army ransacked Jerusalem. Destroyed the city, tore down the temple, and carried off any survivors into slavery. When will our day of the Lord be? With everything going on in the world, it's kind of hard to argue with. Don't you think maybe it could be 2021 still? 2022? It would just make sense, right? It would, unless, unless the day of judgment for us has already taken place. For two-thirds of his book, it's only three chapters, so really two out of three chapters, Zephaniah preaches this promise of judgment, and rightly so. But he gets to his final chapter, and Zephaniah's message takes an unexpected turn there were a few faithful believers left in Jerusalem as there always are those who took the Lord's warnings seriously and repented of their sins and to them the Lord offers a completely different message a message of joy instead of judgment a message of peace instead of punishment, a message of hope instead of hell. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. That just sounds so much better, doesn't it? Not just from what we've been hearing so far this morning, but even everything else that inundates our lives musically this season, that's so much better than have a holly jolly Christmas. The Lord gives His people four commands, and each one of them increases sing, shout, be glad, rejoice. But why? I mean, how could they? How can we? How can we rejoice? Because the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. In the midst of this dark world and in this season of repentance and preparation, we take a Sunday to rejoice Because we know what this means, this promise that the Lord is coming near. He's not coming to give you punishment. He's coming to take it away. This is why Paul can say in our second scripture reading, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. This is why John the Baptist, who Jesus regarded as the greatest man who ever lived, this is why John could say, But Jesus is even greater. In fact, he's so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes Because Paul and John, who both preached the coming of the Lord, knew why Jesus came. He came to take your judgment and punishment upon himself on a cross and to rise again victoriously. And in doing so, he comes to defeat your every last enemy, all of your sin the fear of death, the power of the devil, they're all doomed because the Lord Jesus comes. And this arrival isn't just something that we look back on at Christmas or look ahead to on Judgment Day. Zephaniah twice in this reading says that the Lord is with you right here and now. The Lord your God is with you he says but what does that mean you know that's something that we we need to be real clear on this morning because it's the kind of thing that we say to one another all the time isn't it god be with you the lord is with you you're not alone but why why is the lord with me what is he doing If he's just walking beside me to make footsteps in the sand, then how do I grapple with pain and suffering and loss in this life? If Jesus is just with me and yet always allows this bad stuff to happen, then is he really with me? And if he is really with me, then I hope he's enjoying the show. Because it sure seems like all he's doing is watching how my life unfolds. Or comes unraveled and in the same way Zephaniah also calls God mighty and we echo this too don't we to one another in an effort to comfort each other we say things like you know what God has all the power it's in God's hands God is strong God is almighty but again why how does he use his almighty power? Because that matters even more than the fact that God has all the power. Is he just strong for the strength of this for the sake of strength? Just so that he can say, I can do something. I mean, are we supposed to be comforted by a God with unlimited potential but an unclear purpose? No. Why is God with you? How does he use his power? Zephaniah gives us the answer to both of those, and it's the same. The Lord God is with you. He is mighty to save. To save you. That is why Jesus comes near. That is why it's so comforting to know that Jesus is always with you. That is how he uses his power. It is always, always, always to save you. To rescue you. So that regardless of the circumstances in your life, no matter the pain or the suffering or the loss that you are going through, the Almighty Lord is with you. Sometimes to use that pain... Other times, in spite of it. But it is always to save. Still have your doubts? Just listen to how he talks about you. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So gushy. It sounds like the kind of poem that newlyweds would write to each other in the middle of the day. The Lord delights in you. He smiles when you walk into a room. He just cannot wait to brag about you and show you off to his friends. He will quiet you with his love. What a picture. When the craziness and stress and expectations and busyness of our lives, especially this time of year, threaten to kill our joy, what does the Lord do? He comes in quiet love. Like a parent who was woken up in the middle of the night to a crying baby. What do you say? Are you kidding me? I'm trying to sleep! No pick them up and you gently hold them in your arms and you rock them back to sleep with your quiet words of love. And here is the picture. When Jesus comes, is there any better way that he could have made his first appearance than as a little baby? That on that silent night, God comes in quiet love to take away our fear, to quiet our anxious hearts, to assure us of his tender love. And finally, the Lord rejoices over you with singing. All morning, I've been trying to convince you that because of what the Lord has done for you and is doing for you and will do for you in the future, you have every reason to rejoice. And all morning, as I've been trying to convince you to rejoice in songs of praise, well, the Lord has been rejoicing over you all morning. His heart bursts forth in love song after love song. And you're the topic. The Lord does not reject you. He rejoices over you. So what do we do with this? How does this change? How does this change the way we view the Lord's coming near? Not just for one Sunday a year, not just for Christmas, but forever. Zephaniah said, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Just as the Lord's power has a specific purpose to save you, so he now has given a specific purpose to your life, to your hands, purpose to the work he has called you to do in your home and at your job, at school and in your community and all of this that you do, this is divinely inspired work work that He uses to bless others. The Lord uses His strength to strengthen your hands, to do the good things you do in the world, to put you to work as you love your spouse and as you serve your kids and as you work hard at your job and as you honor your parents and and look after your friends. All of this has divine purpose. God's purpose of being a blessing to the world through your hands. The Lord is coming near. That was the message of Zephaniah. That is the message of Advent. And there is no greater message in the world. No better reason to rejoice. The Lord is with you. He came at Bethlehem, to go to a cross to save you by accomplishing the forgiveness of your sins. He comes to you through word and sacrament to create and strengthen faith, applying to you that very forgiveness He won by connecting you to His life and death and resurrection. And He will come again to judge the living and the dead. But even then, you have nothing to fear. Because you already know the verdict. Forgiven. Victorious, saved, today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.